Next Chapter Podcasts. Welcome back to another edition of Thick Skin with Jock and Hawk. I'm your boy, Double J, Jock Jones. And I'm Mr. 1042 Games, Latroy Hawkins. This show is called Thick Skin because you have to have thick skin to be in the spotlight. Whether you're a professional athlete like me and Hawk, who play in the bigs, or a special guest, Bert Blylevin, or an entertainer, the media will come after you. So, you better be ready. We're here to tell it like it is, correcting the media when they get it wrong, and they do get it wrong. Dive deep into the world of sports, all sports, and entertainment from an athlete's perspective. So sit back and get ready. We got a special guest for you today, the great Bert Be Home by Levin. Make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get it on, Hawk. Welcome, Bert. Hey, well, thank you, guys. Pleasure to be here. It's great to have you, Bert. Um, you know, you and I go way back, a little further back than you and Jock, but, you know, just always enjoyed you calling our games. You never had a bad thing. I, lo- I love the fact that you took you took the Vince Scully route. You always said positive things about everybody because you understood how hard the game really was. And I appreciate that. I know I don't get a chance to tell you that that often, but I really appreciated that. Well, Hawk, I think, and Jock, you know what? Having the opportunity to play for 22 years on that mound, I know that, you know, you'd like things to go your way every goddamn day, but it doesn't, you know? So you got to take the good with the bad. And a lot of fans out there, you know, they'll, I was watching a football game the other night, and the fans in Philly were all upset, you know, that the guy dropped the ball, whatever, but it's not that easy. You know, you think you wanted to do that, you know? So, yeah, they'd say, oh, I could have caught that ball. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Yeah. No way. No way. First of all, you wouldn't be out there. It would have killed your exactly. ass. Exactly. But, but you know what? Baseball is a fun game. It's supposed to be a fun game. And, uh, you know, when you – when you play the game the way that you two did and I did, you enjoy it. You you have to look at it and you have to be you have to be excited about watching the game. And uh, yeah, it's not that easy. It's not that easy. You hit the nail on the head, Bert, and I say it all the time. I, I call them fanatics because that's what they are. They're they're just they're rabid. They're, they're they sit at home. They half of them are drunk. Some of them are, were were wannabes. And they just think the game's so easy. The ball's like 80 miles an hour when they're sitting on the couch. You know, the, the, the passes, they're wide open and, and the quarterback's got to see the whole field. And why didn't the, the, the shoot? He's wide open. Man, the, the game's so much faster than it is when you're sitting on the couch. So like Hawk said, we appreciate the way that you call our games and you analyzed our games. And uh, you, you did it more from a player's perspective and one who played at a high level and who understood that the game wasn't as easy as it looked. Well, uh, 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 you know, Troy, you mentioned Vince Scully. You know, I grew up in Southern California. I listened to, I love Don Drysdale. I love Koufax. And I, I love listening to Vince Scully and Jerry Doggett describe the games. I actually learned my curveball from listening to Vince Scully describe Koufax's curveball. Because back then, the mound was about 15 inches high. And Koufax had the drop straight over the top, 12 to 6 type breaking ball. And uh, I, I kind of... Listen to him because there wasn't a lot of games on TV back in the 60s. So he was mainly on radio. And my pops and I would sit and I would keep score. 
Uh, it went especially with Drysdale and Koufax because of the strikeouts that they were able to do uh, and or, and get. But uh, Ben Scully, and I had an opportunity to talk to him, of course, being a broadcaster for 25 years for the Twins. When we played the Dodgers, I sat down with him and, and uh, I told him I admired the heck out of him and I appreciate everything that he's brought to baseball, what he meant to me as a young kid growing up. And he said, you know, I always thought that he always found a positive out of a negative. And that's what I really enjoyed listening to him about. You know, Jim Gilliam could make an error or, you know, uh, Maury Wills could make an error at short and he'd come out and say, well, if they had it all do over again, he would have probably played it differently. You know, just just the words that he brought to the fans was incredible. We talk about your love of baseball. We get into that. Where did you get your love of baseball? I mean, it's been talked about your father. And can you talk about how important your dad was to you and how he inspired you to be become a Hall of Famer? And well, I'm very honored to that. I'm happy for Joe Maurer and, uh, you know, all the guys that got Helton and also Adrian Beltre. Outstanding uh, threesomes coming in along with Jim Lefevre. But, Hawk, I learned my baseball from my pops. Uh, he became a big Dodger fan growing up in Southern California. When we moved from, I, I was born in Holland. When we moved from Holland, we went to Canada for four years. When I was about seven years old, we came to the United States. And uh, I, uh, the school that I went to from maybe first to third grade, maybe second grade, kindergarten to second grade, you know, you didn't play a lot of sports. Uh, but when I moved to Garden Grove, California, which is in Orange County, yep. mm -hmm. uh, the friends I started hanging out with, were, they played baseball. They played Little League. And I wanted to play Little League. And I had a paper out in the morning. I, I delivered the Herald Examiner in the morning. And uh, I wanted to play baseball. My parents didn't make a lot of money. So I finally came home one day, and I kept begging to play Little League. And I told my mother, I said, Mom, I threw the paper on top of the roof. I've got a good arm. I want to play Little League. And she said, <laughs> and they finally signed me up. And I started off as a catcher because, you know, every Little League team has catcher gear. I didn't have a glove. I didn't have shoes. And Mr. Price was my first Little League coach. And uh, I guess maybe catching, he saw that I was throwing the ball back harder to the pitcher than he was throwing to me. And he said, you want to pitch? And I I said, sure, I'll try it. And I fell in love with that baseball in my hand and uh, being able to throw against the wall every day, whether I played football, basketball, you know, whatever sport, I ran cross country. But we always found a way to hung out with my friends and we played baseball. We played over the line. We played all kind of games. And if I, if I had to play baseball by myself against a cinder block wall, I would put a little strike zone on that wall and I would just – pepper that ball over that wall ball against that wall over and over. And that's kind of how I learned, uh, I'd say Hawk, you know, being a pitcher control of my fastball, mm -hmm. by the visualization of being able to hit that little box over and over and over. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's funny you say that Bert, because that's kind of like how we all learn how to play the game. We got outside. I mean, the video games weren't prevalent. The internet wasn't prevalent, you know, uh, uh, our parents kicked us out of the house until the street lights came on. So we went out and, and we played strikeout and we, you know, we, we played, you know, two on two or three on three or whatever uh, it was. And if nobody was outside, I would uh, 
just like you. And I'd take a tennis ball and I'd draw a square uh, box on the wall and I'd, I'd throw that thing in there all day long until I was consistent with throwing that <laughs> thing in. Hey, you're laughing, Hawk. I was a better pitcher than I was hit or when I was young. I could actually throw when I, <laughs> when I was younger. I, I had four sisters and two brothers. My oldest brother wasn't uh, really athletic. My older brother was assigned with the Angels, my brother Joe. But uh, I had four sisters, and we would play out in the street. We lived in a cul-de-sac. And my sisters would say, well, I'm done playing. And I would say no. And I'd be able to hit them while they were running toward the house with that (laughs) tennis ball. And, of course, I'd get in trouble, you know. Uh, My my dad was a strong man. And, uh, you know, I felt sorry for my mother because my mother was not the disciplinarian. My dad was. My mother would say, go to your room until your dad comes home. Well, my dad straightened bumpers for a living. The steel mm. bumpers way back when, coming from Hawley, he's a very strong man. And uh, when you got sent to your room, oh boy, when that door came and, and, and he would walk in and he'd say, you know, give my mother a kiss or something. And she would reply by saying, those goddamn kids. And he would just start swinging. And uh, if I was in a room, I'm in trouble. I'm, I'm against I'm on the floor. He beat the poop out of me. Oh, man. But those are the times you remember, you know. You remember those yeah. because it made you a better person. It really did. It, uh, you know, I look at those times. I wouldn't trade them for anything because my mom and dad meant so much to me. They gave me the opportunity to, well, first of all, come to the United States and, and have a better life. And uh, we did it the right way. We, you know, my parents, we were, they came five years and they became U.S. citizens, which made us U.S. citizens uh, in, back in 1962. Yeah. Well, cool. So your dad, your biggest baseball fan, talk about, a read an article about your dad screaming at the umpire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My dad's unbelievable. He would come to the games and there were games that my dad's name was Joe, Joe Blylevin. And uh, the other fathers knew that my dad had a big mouth. And if the umpire didn't wasn't doing what he thought the other fathers were doing, maybe the strike zone, they would tell Joe, this umpire's terrible. <laughs> so my dad was vocal, you know, he, hey, you, God, gosh darn it, you know, in his Dutch accent. And then there were games that, that the umpire would come to the backstop and say, Joe, if you don't leave the school grounds, your team's going to forfeit because I've had enough of you. Well, there was one time that finally he left. Well, the school that I went to, Santiago High School in Garden Grove, it was in the back of the of the school grounds. So there were homes behind the the fence, the chain link fence. My dad had to leave the school grounds. He drove around and went into somebody's backyard and got not on school grounds, hanging on that fence, screaming at the umpire. So, yeah, he was a... He was a tough man, but uh, he was a very loving man, too. That's got to be awesome, man. I love it. Well, there was another time, Hawk. When I when I signed with the Twins in 1969, I played American Legion ball. So I'd call my friends up, my buddies on the baseball team, and uh, I'd say, you know, how you guys doing? And he says, you should have been here because the American Legion game, your dad was accused of throwing rocks at the umpire. They kicked him off the school grounds. At the umpire? Yeah. Yeah, pretty good control too. I'm sure. He, now I know where where you got it from. You got it from. <laughs> I got Joe. the control from him. Yes. Exactly, and the attitude too from pops. <laughs> <laughs> that stubbornness. Yes, Bert. Speaking of the stubborn, I read 
somewhere when you were with the Pirates that you had a couple. Actually, may have started with the Twins uh, with contract issues, but when you're with the Pirates, you had to stand up for yourself uh, because uh, they weren't treating you right over there. You want to speak to that a little bit? That was uh, 1980. I had come off the 1979 season. We won the World Series with the Pirates. I had 20 no decisions, which I believe is still a, a record. I was coming from the American League where, you know, I threw a lot of complete games. I uh, went deep into the ball game, And, of course, Chuck Tanner was our manager. And after the fifth or sixth inning, you know, if, if we were ahead or down two to one or it was a close ball game, and I came up to hit, I was a terrible hitter, uh, I would understand that, you know, he, uh, he would pinch hit for me. I had no problems with that. I never questioned that. My question is, why do I have to pitch every sixth day? In the American, I was pitching every fourth day. I was averaging about 280, 290 innings a year. All of a sudden, in the National League, I'm pitching 240. You know, so I felt he's taken innings away from me that I'm at my best. And I, I wasn't completing a lot of games. So, uh, yeah, I, I left. I left and I was walked away from baseball for about two weeks. And uh, I was I was upset. And uh, I finally came to my senses and said, what else am I going to do in my life? I love baseball. I went back. I went back, joined the Pirates in 1980. Yeah, that happened. Hawk, you played 21 years. Jock, you played a long 15 years. And you have your ups and downs. I doubted myself. I didn't like the way I was being used, and I spoke up. And but I went back to the game club. And and that's, I mean, that's the most important thing. Like kids these days, you know, you, they face adversity and they want to quit and they want to go home and they want to, you know, uh, change teams and they want to change environments. But hey, I mean, you had a situation where you went home for a couple of weeks and you probably thought better of it, and they probably thought better of it, and they brought you back. You were better for it, and they were better for it, and you moved on. Yeah, Bert, again, like, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And, you know, during that time in Pittsburgh, you had to stand for something. And you know what? I'm sure a lot of your teammates, a lot of other players around the league, they took notice of that. They took notice of that. And, you know, all that played a huge part into the free agency thing and, you know, helping us get to the part where we get to arbitration, free agency. So you're, ta you're taking a stand. It probably was some small at that time in 1980, but it ended up being huge in the grand scheme of things when it comes to contract negotiation, being able to play where you want to play at, and teams being honest and honoring their, the deals. I think, Hawk, the biggest thing for me, I didn't feel like I was being used the right way. Uh, that's the only thing. I never – Chuck Tanner's a great man. He was a great manager, God rest his soul. And I love my time in Pittsburgh, but – I just didn't feel I was being used the way, especially in the American League, they had a designated hitter rule. You know, when I first came up, you know, and they put that in in 1973, I had Tony Oliva hit for me, you know. Uh, so why wouldn't you want to go out there? And I was a guy that always wanted to finish every game I could start. I had a lot of complete games, a lot of shutouts. But, uh, you know, it's just that, that inner drive. And it's probably a mistake. I got to agree, agree. It was a mistake on my part on leaving. Uh, when I did come back, I had some. I had to talk to my teammates about my reasoning why, and they seemed to, uh, you know, accept it because I was honest with them. I didn't. I didn't hide it that I was, uh, you know, being uh, a baby. I, I just. I stood up for what I believed in. 
not enough of that goes around, you know, standing up for what you believe in. Not enough. It's like now we're in the, we're in the era where, like Jock was saying, like the players today, they're not not the same as the players. And they're not supposed to be. But when you think about – I think about Otani's contract. Like when did the players start giving, giving the teams a deal? Like discounts, like without a compound interest. And where does that even benefit you? Like I don't – like that would have never happened back in the day. Never. I just hope, guys – you know, Latroy and Jock, I hope that these players today realize that I went through eight different lockouts and strikes from 1970 to 1992. I missed, you lose money, you know, when you don't, when you're not out there playing the game you love. So these players today, I think most of them understand uh, what we went through to get them to where Otani is today or some of these free agents are today. Hopefully they do. I think the association, Baseball Association, does a great job of letting these people know, these players know, uh, the history of the game. And uh, where, you know, you guys came from, where I did before uh, you guys came up. But, uh, you know, it's just, uh, you go out there and you, we got we got to play a kid's game for a long time. So you got to enjoy it. It wasn't all about the money. No, not at all. It wasn't. Yes. Today's players are rewarded a lot better than, but I'm glad I pitched when I did. I'm old school. I don't believe, I believe in analytics, but we did analytics way back when because we opened up that newspaper and if I'm going to face the Mets or say the Yankees, I'm going to do my homework through the newspaper and see when Don Mattingly comes in with the Yankees, what did he do three games prior before I have my start against him? If he's if he's ten for fourteen, I know he's swinging a bat hard. You know, good. If he's if he's zero for you know fourteen, well then maybe he's struggling it a little bit. I used to go out and watch early batting practice, and I, Hawk, you probably did the same thing. You learn a lot by going out early as a player. I was a student of the game. I went out early because the opposing team would hit early, say one or two o'clock in the afternoon, and I'd go out and see who's hitting. Who's working on something? You know, you can see them. Well, Jock, if you're struggling a little bit with that ball away, they're going to take you out early, and they're going to say, you know, everything's fastball away. Take it to left field. Take it to left field. So you see that, and uh, you hope to, you know, that when your time comes out on the mound as a pitcher, that uh, you can remember that, and you can hopefully see how he reacts in the, in the box and swings at that certain pitch. Hey, Bird and Hawk, we're going to switch gears uh, really quick because there was this, some, a special thing that happened today for three guys. And, Bert, we, we introduced you, but we did not give you your proper due. And I want to go over a couple things and let the people know who they really uh, who's, who's on the show with us. Uh, so you spent 22 years in the big leagues. You played for five different teams, the Twins, the Rangers, the Pirates, the Guardians, and you ended up, uh, with the actually, you ended back up with the Angels, but uh, you played with the Twins uh, again, and then the Angels. Twenty-two years in the big leagues, uh, fifth most strikeouts in the history of the game, thirty-seven hundred and one. Uh, you were two hundred and eighty-seven against two hundred and fifty losses, twenty-seventh most, three point three one ERA, two hundred and forty-two complete games. 
4,970 innings pitched, two-time All-Star, two-time World Series champ. Um, major, major, major league debut at 19. Um, you got your 3,000 strikeout with the Twins. You're an analyst uh, in, uh, from 1996 to uh, 2020. Uh, you were in a movie. I didn't know you were a movie star until I read up on you with Jim Belushi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Bert, you were in, you were inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2011. How did you feel about having to wait so long to get into the Hall of Fame? Well, my numbers didn't change. And I figured, you know, over all the 14 years I had to wait, that uh, they finally caught, counted my Little League wins. Uh <laughs> But then I thought, you know what? I sat back and I thought, you know, my last name is Bly Levin. Mm -hmm. Be home by mm -hmm. 11. So I figured the writers were waiting till 2011 to put me in, which they did. So, yeah, I'm very, you know, it doesn't matter when you go in. There's a lot of guys like, say, Jack Morris, for instance. He's a workhorse. You know, he was put in by the Veterans Committee. I'm so happy for Joe Maurer. I'm happy for Beltre. I'm happy for, you know, uh, uh, Helton that had to wait a little bit longer than probably he should have. There's a lot of guys looking in that, uh, you know, deserve maybe to be in the Hall of Fame. But as Jane Forbes Clark says, every ceremony that we have, and she'll say it again, that of all the players that wore a major league uniform, less than 1% get into the Hall of Fame. So it's a very elite fraternity and i'm very proud uh that uh, i'm part of that fraternity you know i i never thought like how you said like one percent and is and the percentage of guys that even get on a ballot just a little bit higher than that but it's still a very small number and i remember when i was on the ballot i didn't think nothing of it because i'm saying like got no chance of going to hall of fame it's like a useless like it's useless but then you get these people calling you saying, like, bro, think about all the players that you played against that would never, ever have a chance. Like, they're not even on the ballot. They have no shot, and you're on the ballot. Like, I guess that is special. But, you know, when you went in the Hall of Fame, Bert, Anita and Troy were out there sitting with Gail right there with your family, and I know they absolutely enjoyed that. I was a little jealous. You know why? Because they had went to Cooperstown before I ever went there. So... I'd never been to Cooperstown until after you had, you were inducted. But again, we talk about his stats. Like he threw 325 innings in 1973. That's I mean that, that don't even make sense to me. 325 <laughs> and you can still wipe your ass. That just blows well, my mind. Like and it wasn't a league leader. But hockey, look at your career. Okay, I know you played with what 11, 11 different teams. You 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 were in 1,042 games. My God, that that's that's a lot of appearances, and you came up as a starter. I remember I was there when you came up. Uh, you know, then you then they put you as long man. You closed a lot of ball games. You got a lot of saves, over a hundred saves. You know, you you had a great career, and to be on the Hall of Fame ballot, you have to play at least ten years. Yeah, and both of you guys were able to do that. So you're both you were on the ballot. You know, that's an honor itself because. It's tough to play as long as you guys yeah. did. I, and I, I'm, yeah. I got one vote. So I, I'm damn proud about it. It's okay. I got a vote. I got two. Bob Nightingale and my good friend, may he rest in peace, Pedro Gomez. Oh, very nice, eh? 
Yep. But Jock, you played what? You played for four different yep. teams. Yep. With Twins, Cubs, uh, Marlins, and Tigers. Twins. Both of you came up with the Twins. Yep. Jock, you you look at your career. You're a 277 career hitter. I remember, Jock, we had a conversation many years ago when you first came up, mm-hmm. back in 99, something like that. They were platooning you. And they were they were sitting you against left-handers. I remember I was sitting on the bench, and we were talking, and you said something like, "I can hit left-handed." They they don't think I can hit left-handers. Yep. And finally, you showed them you could. I did. I did. Well, you I, had a couple of years. You hit over three hundred. I did. I had back to back. I remember telling you too, like I had to hit left-handers to get to that point. You know what I mean? Yeah. And Gardy, yeah. Gardy was gracious enough to give me a chance to play every day in 2002. And that was my best year as a big leaguer. I hit 300. I, yeah. I had 27 homers and drove in 85 runs. And we were we were Central League champions. And a lot of yeah. those games, we were up one nothing before they get their popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> the hot dogs. One nothing. One nothing. One nothing. <laughs> you guys have to be happy about Joe Maurer going in. I, I'm, I'm a I mean, Both of you guys have... You know, you there were teammates. I'm ecstatic. You know, I tell people like when Joe was 18 and he came uh, to spring training, <laughs> AJ didn't like that very much. One and and <laughs> and two, he could have left with the team. He had the best at bats of anybody that whole spring. Oh yeah, he was so cool and calm and collected, and all the pitchers loved throwing to him. I I was I was an I was an offensive player. And all I could hear was pitchers raving about how how much of a target he put up, how big of a target he was, how soft his hands were, how he framed pitches. That's all I heard from pitchers that whole spring. And he could have he could have left with our team as an 18-year-old, fresh out of high school. Yeah, Hawk, let me ask you something. At six foot five, Joe was, but he seemed to get as a pitcher, you threw to him, he seemed to get low. Yeah, so I never I don't think I threw to him in that one spring training he was up. Um, and I never played with Joe. Oh, you didn't? And I was there when he was drafted. You know, a lot of people think we played together, but no, we didn't. But in spring training that year, we played. I played with him. And I remember one, we were over in, um, we were over in Atlanta at their, at their spring training site. And he was facing Smoltz. And he hits a rocket to the shortstop at the time. It's like, wow. And he came back and he sat next to me and he's 18 years old, fresh out of high school in St. Paul, Minnesota. And he was like, man, I was right on that. He said, but it, the ball ran just a little bit more than I thought it was going to run. I got him next time. So the next time he goes up, most is still in the game. He hits a missile over the shortstop head. It's kind of like he made that, that's, Tiny adjustment yep. at 18 years old yep. off of a Hall of Fame pitcher. And for me, that's when I looked at him like, oh, shit, this dude's special. He's special. Because you don't, guys don't think – I can't say – I don't – I won't say guys don't think like that. I don't – I would say guys, they think like that, but actually being able to execute it like that, that's the difference maker. Yeah, you have those certain hitters. I remember talking one time on the bench with Rod Carew. And Rod had success against a, a lot of pitchers, but this guy on the mound a certain day, he'd had a lot of success against. And I said, I said to him, I said, Rod, what do you look for? You know, out of, where do you see the ball coming out of? And he said, I look at the bill of the hat and Jock, maybe you, but he said, 
He said there are certain pitchers, and I, Hawk, you can't believe this. He said that when he released, when the pitcher released a ball, it looked like a beach ball mm-hmm. to them. Yep, to him. Yep, that's yep. unbelievable. That's no good for the pitcher. No, at yeah. all. No, no, <laughs> no. And guys like Tony Gwynn, you know, the Wade Boggs, the, the guys that could hit, you know, 320, 330 on a yearly basis, they have to have that that sight that's unbelievable. Yeah, they, they Joe had the ability at 18, man, and I know, Hawk, you're talking about adjustments. He had the ability to slow the game down. He didn't swing at a lot of bad pitches. He, he didn't even offer at pitches he didn't want to swing at, which, like, I learned from him that spring. And I, I had been in the big league maybe a couple years before we signed Joe. I watched him the whole spring because I'm like, man, if he could do it, I know I can. So I watched him a lot during that spring training. That's a tribute to do, Jock, because there's so many athletes today say, I'm going to do it my way. Yep. They maybe they don't succeed. Yep. You weren't afraid to watch Mm-mm. somebody Mm-mm. that – that could help you become a better player. Yep. That's important. Yep. With me, it's just like being a, I didn't play with Maurer, but I've been around him a lot, like I said, and then being able to play with Todd Helton and just watching him go about his business. The, the You know, the, the one year I, I played with him and he was, you know, we went to the World Series that year in 07 with the, and we played the Red Sox and got swept. But just watching how, how you know, he pays such attention to detail. How when he was in the at the ballpark, it was all business. But in 07, we made it our business to make sure at some point he was gonna loosen up a little bit and, and relax and go ahead and have fun like the rest of us. We made yeah. sure like, that was our mission. We were doing Soldier Boy to dance Soldier Boy, Zoom in the clubhouse. That's the year it came out, and everybody was doing it itself for time. And we was like. Didn't know he was watching, and if he was watching, he probably had his face turned up at us with his big old beard and his must—I mean, his goatee. And then he hits a home run. I think it was like the tenth straight win for us in that that September. We won twenty in a row, and he hit a walk-off home run against Saito, and Saito was closing for the Dodgers. And we run up to home plate, and this joker gets the home plate, and he does the soldier boy. He goes zoom. It was like. Oh, we didn't got the country for Tennessee. We finally broke the code. We finally broke the code. So just watching him go about his business and you know, you know when they're different. You know when the guys are different. He I think Hawk, you're talking about there and, and Jock, it's a team camaraderie yep. that you build. You know, winning cures a lot of bad habits yes. in the game of baseball. Yes. Sure. So you can get a group like we had in nineteen seventy nine with the Pirates. Yep. Uh, we won the World Series. We we're down three games to one. Yep. We didn't give up. 1987. We weren't supposed to win the World Series with the Twins in '87. You know, Detroit was better. You know, the Cardinals were better. But we were playing good baseball at the time. So, yeah. you know, and, and the camaraderie we had with that group. I still. We just finished our fantasy camp, yep. Jock, which you were part of. Yep. And there's so many guys from that '87 team, and it's like. It's like you're seeing your brother again, even though you maybe haven't seen him in four or five months. It's awesome. Yeah, and and that's, you know, I was going to kind of comment on that too, Bert, is it's always great going back to uh, Twins Fantasy Camp. I know the 87 guys and some of the 91 guys, and then some guys from our era uh, are are starting to come. And we're trying to get Hawk over there and Eddie and Tori and those guys. Uh, Come on, Hawk. But but (laughs) it's, uh, like you said, I played for three other teams. 
but there's no other team that I played on. I maybe there's a player or two, but there's no other team that I played on where I could pick up the phone and they're going to answer, or or they're going to pick up the phone and call me, or we're going to congregate somewhere and meet up somewhere and and hang out for a couple of days, right? I, I these guys were were are my brothers. You understand what yeah. I'm saying? Even even you guys, we didn't play with you guys, but you guys are our brother. You guys are our big brothers. When we come yeah. around, you guys welcome us with open arms, and and we sit and we listen to the stories that you guys tell about the things that you went through. But it's like we were a part of you guys' championship team. It's it's I I enjoy the heck out of it. Yep, I enjoyed when you were covering us. You always came down in the clubhouse. Yep, and you were not ever. In our face, you need to do it like this. No, you were so cool about it. Like, yep. you know, I, I played in Baltimore, so I had Jim Palmer. And when he would come down, it was just not the same, man. And you guys coming down to the clubhouse in Minnesota. So I think when I get to Baltimore, Jim's going to be more like you. And it wasn't like it's it just like so, you know, that respect and that camaraderie we had with you and, you know, and. And then going on a cruise with you and you and Gail and just hanging out and all the years just go, just just start to fly past. But yes, yeah, it was different. I appreciated that. You know, I was going to listen to you. I don't care how you did it, but exactly. I was going to listen. All I knew is when we're on the cruise, I watched you play basketball. There's no way I would play against you. Hey, <laughs> too hey good. he's a man among. But hey, listen, <laughs> and I, can tell, I can tell it now because we're we're way past it. But him and Jason Ryan. Do you remember Jason Ryan, Bert? Yes, yes. Hey, listen, yeah. white chocolate is what we called him. Because <laughs> once he got that basketball in his hand, he like I'm like, dude, why don't you pitch like you play basketball? Because when he had that basketball in his hand, he commanded all kinds of attention. I'm talking about he was dunking <laughs> and he was crossing people over. I was like, Jason, what's going on around here? Him and Hawk yeah. on the same team, it was just nasty. But that's, that's the camaraderie that uh, you build by just being a, a nice person and just, uh, you know, and playing a game together that you love. Yep. Yep. Bert, let's talk about some of those personalities that you guys had on that 79 World Series team Ooh. with the Pittsburgh Parates. You got Matlock, Willie Stargell. You had Doc Ellis on your team. You got to give us a Doc Ellis story. We are well, Doc, Ellis, Doc Ellis was not with us. Uh, he was with us in spring training. He wasn't with us. A little bit during the season, okay. but uh, we had John Milner. Did you mention John Milner? No. No. Uh, he, was, he was a piece of work. We had so much fun. Jim Rooker. Uh, we, John Milner. Uh, we would, uh, we would, John Milner, Jerry Royce, in 1978, Jerry Royce was a teammate of mine, and uh, we both chewed tobacco. So we knew that John Milner didn't, he had a very uh, soft stomach. So we would sit next to him with John in the middle, and uh, we'd swap chews, and he would upchuck. We could get him to upchuck in a heartbeat. Whoa, and, whoa, uh, he, whoa, 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 back up. You guys would do what? We would swap chewing tobacco. I'd, I'd say something like, boy, my chewing tobacco is really dry. And Royce would say, oh, I bet it's not. He said, mine's pretty moist. I said, well, give me yours, and then I'll give you mine. So we swapped through. There you go. See, Hawk, that's exactly what Milner did. What in the Mil time? Milner, 
And Milner wore a, a shirt, and he, and we had picnic tables in our clubhouse in Pittsburgh. But we had Enrique Romo, who had a knife. You know, he, he threatened to kill us every day. <laughs> but but we, we would have so much more fun. Much. <laughs> Milner wore a shirt that on the back of his shirt, it had a finger on it, and it said, don't with me today, right? Mm-hmm. You can say it. Don't what with we, me today? We, yeah, don't F with me today, oh, right? Yeah. So, of course, what are we going to do? We're going to F with him that day. Of course. So one day, uh, Milner loved, he didn't play a lot because, you know, he was kind of behind Willie and Billy Robinson out in left field. Uh, he wasn't playing a lot, but he loved ice cream. About the third or fourth inning, he'd always go up and and get some ice cream. Well, Jim Rooker and I got there early. We took all the ice cream out of the cooler. And we told our clubby, Hooley, that uh, tell Milner that the ice cream's coming about the third inning. So no ice cream before the game. So about the third inning, I went, went down, and Rooker had this old lady's mask that was an ugly mask with zits on it and all this stuff. So Rooker jumped into the cooler. All right, I went down to the bench and told John, I said, John, ice cream's in. So he goes, of course, he's going to go get an ice cream. <laughs> When he opened up the lid of that cooler, Rooker jumped out and scared the poop out of him, right? Well, now Milner says he went to his locker to get a bat. I'm telling Rooker to get out of the cooler because Milner's going to swing and and hit him, you know? (laughs) So all of a sudden, down, if you guys have been to Pittsburgh, they have that runway that goes all the way around the stadium. And all you hear is yeah. Rooker running and laughing and John Milner swinging a bat at him. I'm going to kill you. i kill you. But we had, we had a lot of great characters in 79 with the Pirates, led by a great manager in Chuck Tanner. He let us play. How was Dave Parker? Oh, Parker was great. You know, Dave is dealing with Parkinson's right now. Okay. Uh, I just got an invitation. It's our 45th anniversary coming up. And uh, the Pirates are holding a, a, a an anniversary, 45th anniversary. So I'm looking forward to going back and seeing a lot of my old teammates there. Very nice. Wow. That's a 45th from the 79 World Series. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Dang. I know. I know. Where, where'd time go? Man, it goes by quick, too. And, and Bert, really quick, too. A uh, couple more things, and we'll get you out of here and let you go, because I know you're a busy man. Uh yeah, we understand that you are you. You talk about a team full of characters. We understand that you were a, a, a pretty big character with the. Maybe you're the originator of the hot foot. I carry this around with me everywhere <laughs> I go, just in case I see some shoelaces that need to be burned. <laughs> the pyromaniac, I see it. <laughs> Kids don't play with matches. No, but uh, no, we had a lot of time. You know what? If you dish it out. You're able to you take it back. Yes. So one day, and we're at a stadium, I don't remember, but you could crawl underneath the bench. It has to be timing. you make got to make sure that your team is winning. Right. So about the sixth or seventh inning, it looks like we're going to win the ball game. I would get <laughs> underneath the bench and try to light, you know, say the manager's foot on fire or whatever, while Rick Sutcliffe was my teammate. And Sorry. when I'm underneath the bench, thinking about, about ready to light somebody's shoes on fire, He's got both my shoes on fire, and I can't get out from underneath the bench. So, <laughs> paid me back. Got him. <laughs> got him. Hey, 
You remember our trainer, Dick Martin, in Minnesota? Dudley. In the shower. I was playing at the time. No, no, I heard the story. No. And tell us what you did to Dick Martin. Dick Martin was our trainer for many years, and you had an incident with him where it was in the shower. You can tell the rest of it. Well, yeah, Dick Martin had, you know, he'd go in the shower, shower down, and he'd always bring his toothbrush with him and brush his teeth in the shower. So while he was washing his hair, you know, his eyes are closed. I would, i put the toothbrush up my butt. And, uh, you know, after after he's he's looking for, he got the toothpaste out, he's looking for his toothbrush. And he said, looking around, and I just showed him my butt. His toothbrush was in my butt. Yeah. And what did he say? Well, uh, well I can't say what he called me, <laughs> He had no. to go get a new toothbrush. No. I don't know why he just didn't finish. He already had it in there before he knew it. Man, go ahead and finish. Hey, <laughs> That's awesome, dude. Hey, so, Bert, um, just more on a, a, a serious note um, before, and, and if Hawk has anything else for you. So we talked about being at Fantasy Camp, right? Uh, and you are the judge of Kangaroo Court. Okay. And, and kangaroo court, if people aren't familiar with, uh, kangaroo court is, uh, it's kind of a deal where, where baseball players, uh, teams, it's, it's, it's a team builder. It's camaraderie. You go around and you find guys for doing things that maybe they shouldn't be doing or mistakes they made or, or leaving their gloves somewhere or whatever. Okay. Or anything. And, and Hawk and I got fined a hundred dollars. Because I was on the phone dealing with some stuff back home, and Bert thought I was on a podcast, uh, and and we had to pay a hundred dollars. But um, I, I ask you this question, Bert, because you you raise money for a certain cause. Can can you speak to these people about the the thing that you do and the money you raise, and the things that are near and dear to your heart that 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 make Bert happy or or, or, or tug at Bert's heartstrings? Well, first of all, the uh, kangaroo court, I'm also the commissioner yep. uh, of the kangaroo court. Stan Dickman runs a great fantasy camp. We had 130 campers, and part of the camp wow. is the mm-hmm. camaraderie mm-hmm. that we have. We have a great pro staff. Uh, along with you, Jock, there were so many great guys there, former twins. And we they everybody gets along with all the campers. It's a week of, of playing baseball. And most mm-hmm. of the campers are between 60 and 70 some of them bring their kids to play which is cool but uh the biggest thing is that in the kangaroo court all the money goes to to lee health uh foundation yep. which uh is for cancer for for young kids and young adults so we raised money we raised uh over almost eight thousand dollars a little over eight thousand dollars in my two kangaroo courts uh so we yeah i i walk around i have uh, spies uh, other coaches like Al Newman is really a good spy. He'll tell me if somebody like we had one guy that went up to the plate with the shin guards on. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just little stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, people were saying that you know my fines were a little bit on the heavy side, between twenty and a hundred dollars. But uh, I look at it that uh, you know it's all going to a worthy cause, yep. and uh, we raised some good money. Yeah. Raised some good money for I charity. Fine, I wasn't even there. Yeah, and and then uh, thank you for that. We appreciate that. Uh, Parkinson's is a big uh, 
that's something that uh, because my dad had Parkinson's for 25 years, so my wife Gail and I we contribute to that along with uh, about uh, well, I think last year we went to a different like 17 different uh, charitable organizations that we donate money. So that's uh, what uh, we've been blessed to be able to able to do that. Wounded warriors is very important to us. Uh, there's a there's a, uh, a a company called or a, a guy Kaufman in Minnesota. Uh, he 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 uh, uses horses to uh, for for kids with handicaps and stuff like that. It's called Changing Gates up in Minnesota. So we're involved with them. Good, good. Okay. So Bert, before we let you go, we got to talk about since you're in the Hall of Fame. You know, we talk about the guys who hadn't been able to get in, like Barry Bonds. Uh, Gary Sheffield, uh, Wagner. Wagner missed this year by five votes. Uh, right. This is his ninth year on the ballot. Next year be 10. Like Sheff- Sheffield, he's heading over to the, what is that? The, what other committee is that? Vet- Veterans Committee. Veterans yes. Committee. So, you know, what are your thoughts on guys like Barry Bonds, um, Guire, and Sheffield? Well, I, I think, you know, the PEDs played a part, I think, probably in the writers' uh, thinking uh, over the period of time. Uh, I look at guys like Tommy John. Jim Cott was just put in a couple of years ago along with Tony Oliva. Uh, you know, Jim won 283 games. Tony Oliva, of course, you know, a great uh, Minnesota icon that was over 300 hitter, was long overdue to him to be in. I look at Tommy John, 288 wins, a guy that should be in there. Uh, I'm, I'm against Personally, I'm against the guys like Rodriguez and Clemens that use PEDs to improve their performance. That's just the way I feel. Yep. Uh, I wish that when the Mitchell report was out, I wish they had named everybody, not just a handful of individuals. I wish they had just brought out the names, and so you know, you know that uh, they were they were playing the game illegally. I think you know you two guys, you played the game the right way. I know I played the game the right way. Yeah, we use amphetamines and stuff like that during our time. I'm not going to lie to that. Puppers and things like that. But, uh, you know, it's just like drinking a good, strong cup of coffee. What the hell? So, Bert, when you talk about you talk about the PEDs, and you talk about the Mitchell Report, I have an issue with the Mitchell Report. And I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate on that. My, my issue with the Mitchell Report was we agreed to have these, to t- do the testing anonymously. No, it's supposed to be an anonymous. No name should be attached to no urine sample. And then we were supposed to believe Major League Baseball that it was anonymous. And if a certain percentage of guys tested positive, then we'll, we would agree to the drug testing. Well, at what point in time should we trust the Mitchell report when it was supposed to be anonymous? Now you start letting these different names out. Why do we get the, Why should we trust them? We don't know whose name was on that list. We don't know who wasn't on that list. We don't know who they wanted to pump up, and we don't know who they wanted to pull down. I like I can't trust them because I trusted them with our samples being anonymous, and then all of a sudden these names are attached to the these names are attached to our samples. So I, you know, we start talking about the Mitchell report. The guys who got caught, caught. That's a whole different conversation. But guys from the Mitchell report, for me, I think we were bamboozled. Yeah. By Major League Baseball when it came to the Mitchell Report, because we don't know. We don't know if, who was on that list. We don't know. And we don't know. We don't know what guys were. 
taking something that was tainted. We we have no clue. The whole thing was a sham for me. And to this day, I think about the Mitchell report. I'm going to throw that in the garbage because I can't trust anybody that had anything to do with the Mitchell report because they lied to us out the gate. Well, the, the twins had a picture of Juan Rincon. Remember Juan? Got Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. you know, and a lot of these guys that play winter ball down in South America, wherever, they're given what's called a B12 shot. Yeah. They mm-hmm. don't know what's in those things, you know, and then they get caught. So, I, uh, you know what? I appreciate your honesty, Hawk. And, yeah, I mean, it was supposed to be a secret, more or less, you know, just to see. They, I don't know who put it together, but you're right. There were a lot of names on that list that you could look at. Maybe some of them are in the Hall of Fame today. Right. You don't know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But my thing is, we only agreed to it because it was supposed to have been anonymous. Yeah. And if it's anonymous, right. how did our names start getting attached to different different urine samples? Like That was, it was just so bad. It, you know, they just complain. They wonder why, at that time, the... Everything was fractured between the union and Major League Baseball when it came to collect the bargain agreement because guess what? The lack of trust was like, it was severed. Like, what are we supposed to do? Am I supposed to believe, oh, David Ortiz's name was on the list. He never got, he never tested positive at any time. Like, guys like us who watched him grow up from a little boy to, you know, the Hall of Famer. Yeah. Yeah. But, Hawk, I think, you know, baseball, when, when, when they hired Marvin Miller back in the 60s, with uh, Jim Bunning and, and other guys that hired Marvin Miller. And then, be, you know, free agency came in in 1976. Uh, there's always been that trust, non-trust between ownership and the Players Association. So hopefully that will get better uh, as, you know, years go by. And I think it has by you know, where, the, where it is today. But uh, there'll always be that that stuff that goes on. Yeah, oh. it will always be something. Yeah. And I see where, you know, Tristan Thompson with the Cleveland Cavaliers, the NBA player, he just got popped for a performance-enhancing drug, and he got a 25-game suspension. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's still out there. Um, for me, for baseball right now, is more so the Latin guys who are getting popped because they're taking stuff that's tainted, or they're actually trying to manipulate the, the system. system. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, Bert, it was awesome having you with us tonight on Thick Skin with Jock and Hawk. Thank Thank you for having me, guys. You guys are great, man. Thank you, I man. I love your smiles. I love your attitude. Thank you. You guys love life, and I appreciate hey. that. Gail and I love you both. Yeah, we love you back. You make sure you give... Your bride, Miss Gail, a hug from the Hawkins family. Yep, I will. And, you know, we found out we were pregnant with Troy. We were with you guys yep. on the cruise. and On the cruise. Great wow. time, Bert. Yeah, hey, hey, hey. You're here by hey, circle. Hey. You're here by circle. Yeah, you guys are here by Here we go. Oh, there you go. You're here by circle. God bless you both, man. Peace out. Next Chapter Podcasts.